Welcome to the next episode of the Austin Bar Association's Council of Firsts. I'm your host, Amanda Arriaga, First Latina President. This podcast is made possible by the Texas Bar Foundation. In today's episode, we talk to an attorney who has celebrated many firsts in her career, Elizabeth Rogers. Elizabeth served as the first ethics officer of the Attorney General's office under John Cornyn, and later as the state's first chief privacy officer under Comptroller Susan Combs. She's a graduate of the University of Texas at El Paso and St. Mary's University School of Law. She has served as president of the Texas Accountants and Lawyers for the Arts, chair of the Computer and Technology Section of the State Bar of Texas, and is now serving as the inaugural chair of the Data Privacy Section of the Austin Bar Association. She's been honored as the Outstanding Young Lawyer of San Antonio, a top Latino lawyer by Latino Leaders Magazine, and named as a trailblazer by El Paso and Austin. I'm so happy to have with us today, Elizabeth Rogers. Thank you, Amanda. It's so great to be here and an honor to be talking with you today. Thank you so much. Um, we always start with sort of the same question. Why did you want to be a lawyer? I decided to be a lawyer when I was a junior in college. I had entered into the University of Texas at El Paso to become a broadcast journalist with the intention of having a roundtable, ultimately, like Cokie Roberts in D.C. My goal was to have a position where I might be able to influence policy and change in society. So I took a class called Law and Society so I would be able to know how to interview lawyers on the courthouse steps, and I fell in love with it. It was a constitutional law class, and I basically ended up ignoring all the other classes in my major and decided to, to begin the whole process of applying to law school in my junior year. You know, you are not the first person that has mentioned an interest in journalism. And so I feel like when we are done with this, we might need a Latina version of The View that includes you, me, Betty Torres said that she wants to solve uh, poverty in society. So I'm going to get you hooked up with this new show that we're going to have. <laughs> okay, we'll have to think of a clever name. I, we can, I'll start thinking right away. Yes, please do. <laughs> so you become a lawyer, and then you actually, while you did a stint in a law firm, you did come back to your passion of solving policy. And you somehow got recognized as being the first ever chief, chief ethics officer for the attorney general's office. How did that position come to be? It was interesting. I um, accepted the offer to join um, General Cornyn's team in 1999. And around the end of 1999 and the beginning of 2000, the Enron debacle occurred. Um, I had come from Houston. Um, he was very familiar with the scrutiny that was being applied to a very large company. There was no barrier between opportunity and temptation. So he wanted to create a position that provided a barrier between that opportunity and temptation. I've never heard it described that way. There's no barrier between opportunity and temptation. So with your role as chief ethics officer, how did you create that barrier? We had a system of requests for any um, any activity that a, an attorney in the attorney general's office wanted to pursue or an, an employment opportunity um, that they wanted to pursue. They had to come to our office and fill out a form, have a meeting, and answer various questions about what type of interest might be involved, um, essentially 
you know, I can give you a great example. Uh, Ted DeLisi was in Cornyn's press office at that time. And he said, Elizabeth, you know, I've got this great opportunity. Carl Rove wants me to join his team and, you know, become a political advisor. And so we had to walk through how it would avoid, you know, how to avoid any type of conflicts of interest with his role as a press um, director in General Cornyn's press office. So it's really just a matter of creating uh, walls. Or another example was back then that the salaries were so low for attorneys, it was shameful. Um, so a woman attorney came to visit and asked if she, if there were any conflicts with her working at Costco on the weekends. So these are the types of questions that would come up. And obviously there is the, you know, ethics code that um, elected officials must abide by. And so we had to make sure if anybody offered tickets to anyone in the executive team of the attorney general that it followed the guidelines or, you know, any other type of hospitality um, offering. So, Well, and I hope as part of that discussion of is this lawyer allowed to work at Costco, there was a discussion of, do we pay the right amount to our attorneys? Yes. In fact, they were, the salary got increased, thankfully, mm -hmm. in that administration because of that very fact. Yes. Well, I'm glad that that person brought it up and that the answer was yes, but maybe now you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> I hope she quit when that happened. <laughs> so you are seen as the ethics guru of the state. And then a data breach happens later on, and you become the first ever chief privacy officer for the comptroller. How did that happen? This was an amazing story. I had left state government in 2009, 10 years after my employment vested. And that, of course, was probably the worst time to leave state government and go back to the private sector. The only city in the state of Texas that was really hiring was Houston because of the, the economic recession and downturn. So I left Austin, took a job in the private sector that I ended up not enjoying. And I told myself, I've got to give it a year because they moved me there. And I really tried to like it. And um, then after a year, actually it was about 16 months, the position for the chief privacy officer got posted following that massive data breach that occurred in April of 2011. Now, today, in, in perspective, it was not a mega data breach, but it occurred on the watch of an elected official during session, and the comptroller went from being the golden-haired girl with the check, whom ev everyone gets money from the comptroller's office, to someone who had bombs on her chest. And so um, she got this position approved with haste by the, class the classification agency approved the position. I uh, saw it posted and found a, it could be a way to go back to Austin. And it, it happened, it just so happened that I got selected to be interviewed in a first round and I advanced uh, to the second round, which was an interview with Comptroller Combs and her deputy. Um, but basically what I did, there was no position like it before. So I had to, my plan when I got selected for 
the interview was to create a program I believed would have been appropriate for the situation. Um, given that two personnel had lost their jobs, the CISO, Chief Information Security mm -hmm. Officer, the Information Technology Officer, so I knew there was going to be a new team. They needed to regroup and just figured out a very rough brick by brick description of what I thought would work. And I think that was possible help, and helped by the fact that I started out in a compliance role in my first career as a lawyer, which was as an employment lawyer. And it's all about compliance. So once you move and are trained to be a compliance thinker, I think it was natural for me to move into this new kind of unchartered area and, and just with use some common sense, some good old fashioned, you know, uh, elbow grease and, and figure out this has got to be done with a team of people. It no longer need, can be any silos on this type of program. Well, it's interesting because now I also have a state government background. You were the first chief privacy officer, but now it seems like there are many roles like that in different state agencies because so many agencies hold so much data. Yes. But the bad guys are getting more sophisticated also. That's true. So we keep reading, even since 2011, there are still today things that are happening in state and local governments that we hear about all the time. Right. It is one the local government and state government is one of the largest category of targets by cyber criminals because of the fact that they, their hands are tied with money. You know, there, there's a difference in helping create a compliance program at Microsoft or Walmart versus a state government agency who has to prioritize other operations sometimes ahead of compliance. However, I think that trend is changing since about 2015. The legislature has mandated uh, certain requirements throughout the state agencies, um, not yet at the local government level, but there is now finally a business case to create those programs and hopefully get funds for those mandates. Yeah, and I remember coming from DPS, one of the things that they would talk about is some of the data was in such old systems that even the way to protect it is sort of moving the data and really looking at how do we partner with the comptroller, with DIR, the Department of Information Resources. And so I think your legacy now has a team of people at different agencies that come together that when there's a problem to figure out how to solve it, or even preemptively before there's a problem, how do we protect the most precious data that we have in the state? Because there's a lot of it. That's right. And you nailed it, Amanda, because a lot of it is data that should have been disposed of 20 years ago. The records retention system exists for a reason, but whether or not each agency is actually purging that data is a different situation. So it's really a cultural, it has to be a cultural shift, whether in the private or the public sector. Well, and you clearly kept your passion for privacy since this job um, because you helped spearhead our brand new data privacy section. And for the people that might hear data privacy and think that doesn't sound very exciting, I think this idea that sometimes people get hacked and we need solutions, we need to know how to protect real customer data 
um, would be a great entryway for why they should join your section. Tell us a little bit about your new section. Yeah, I'm so excited about this section. Um, Back when I started my career in 2011, the only real resource for attorneys is a group called the International Association of Privacy Professionals. It's otherwise known as IAPP. However, it's not limited to lawyers only, and there's a, you know, which is not a bad thing. Um, privacy officers don't need to be attorneys. However, there are so many laws now that Austin attorneys are starving to know exactly how do I do this for my own law firm or my own clients. So, especially since the governor is about to sign the first Texas con- state consumer data privacy bill, people are going to have questions from their own clients before that law goes into effect in July of 2024. So the timing couldn't be better. Um, I envision that we're going to have many in-house attorneys with their own challenges and products that they've developed and a beautiful exchange of thought leadership within the legal community. And then there's also, of course, many law firms here that have brand new data privacy lawyers. They had the opportunity to actually get law school education about privacy law, unlike many of the rest of us who learned on the job. So the exchange and the outlook and the perspective is going to come together and I believe create a really passionate and large section. So. Um, hopefully everybody will be able to attend our fall mixer. I know the bar will be making announcements through the Austin Bar Code and other um, avenues of communication, social media, and otherwise. And in our podcast notes, we will put information about how to join the section and when that mixer is. Yes. Because I think these are some of the most interesting problems that we have right now to solve. And they're only ever going to keep evolving because as data changes, there will be a new way to undo it. I, I agree entirely. I mean, one of, I'm a huge fan of Brad Smith, who is now CEO of Microsoft. He started as the general counsel before the cloud was developed by Microsoft and his entire philosophy from the role of general counsel up through being a CEO is that the most successful companies in the 21st century are going to be those who are responsible with consumer data privacy. So, and mm-hmm. we've seen that with, you know, tech giant after tech giant either falling apart at the hands of sloppy cybersecurity or privacy practices or going before Congress. I mean, this has become now a daily, and if not daily, at least a quarterly focus for Mm -hmm. our lawmakers in D.C. So, Well, and it's interesting because I'm sure that you remember a couple of years ago, um, data privacy also includes, um, why is anyone calling me about my extended warranty? How did they get my name? Who was able to buy that driver record? Why are they bothering me? Um, So maybe part of what your section can also teach the lay folks that don't do this every day uh, should I sign that terms and conditions box? Should I accept the cookies? Because I think some of us just live and we just like click the button and move forward. And there are all of these implications for your own data, which is why then the telemarketers call you over and over. Absolutely. There's room enough for the consumer focused attorney 
There's mm -hmm. not enough people in the attorney general's office to take care of their questions and their needs for protection. So there will be, I envision, a group of attorneys in the Texas bar and the Austin bar that exist as part of their consumer practice, helping consumers grow their own compliance program, their personalized compliance program. I think we're going to see a lot of vendors be invited to come to our section meetings to talk about various solutions um, that attorneys in just beginning in this space have no idea exist, and they will contribute to the conversation as well. They can also contribute by being corporate sponsors if they want to. We will definitely invite them to do that. <laughs> so I want to sort of go in a different direction. You are very... Um, accomplished you've had all of these exciting jobs that you just happen to apply for and get selected because you're the best candidate but you also happen to be from a border town from el paso and latina so how do you think your background impacts your story well thank you for the opportunity to tell it um i think what i hope to achieve by sharing my career the highlights of my career is that if I can do it, any anybody can. My um, my father passed away from juvenile diabetes when I was four and a half, and my mother took myself and my two-year-old brother to a very small town near her parents and sacked groceries. And so we had a VW Beetle and lived in a trailer, a one-bedroom trailer that is about as long as this dining room until I was seven. And then we moved into a bigger trailer when we moved up to Alvin, Texas, which um, many people know Nolan Lyon is from. Um, then I lived in a trailer that was about twice this size until I was 13. So there were struggles. Um, both my brother and I worked. Um, my mother didn't have a degree. Um, there were a lot of hard times. But I think what I'd like just to share, if anything, is that if any Latina is questioning her ability to pursue and realize her dream, to do it, just do it. Do not, do not fear any barriers. Believe in your, stay grounded by your family and whatever source of faith you have and overcome any stigma or potential barrier they may be just by your sure will. It's also interesting, some of what we have in common uh, that we said before this started is being from El Paso and McAllen, Texas, border towns are pretty similar. Um, and we have some cool sports legends. You have Nolan Ryan in Alvin, Texas. I have Tom Landry in Mission, Texas. Oh, I had no idea that's where he's from. There is a mural of Tom Landry's face that's on one of the walls, like a retaining wall or something. And so while I'm not a sporty person, I do know that about where I'm from. That is so cool. Well, he's definitely America's football team coach. You know, that, that he's, people all over the world know about him. I'm not sure about Nolan Ryan, but maybe. If I know who Nolan Ryan is and I'm not very sporty, I think people know who that is. Yes. Um, well, I love... Um, your message that if any Latina needs help, just do it. And I think that 
this podcast, part of the reason that I wanted to feature folks like you, you're an interesting sort of twofer because your background by itself, the jobs being the firsts are impressive and exciting, but also being a Latina, that's not necessarily anything that I bet that those offices were looking for in particular, but they got it and it got to be you. And so you've gotten to have this big, impressive career and be um, named all of these fancy things by like top latino lawyer by latino leaders magazine i don't know who gets that magazine but they're very proud of you and i love that there is one um, and that they're looking for people like you to feature to inspire the next generation and yes. so i hope that we can keep doing that sure well every day you. every day is a new audition believe me i'm often you know and reflect on what i've had the opportunity to do and to serve but I can't live on past accomplishments. There's always tomorrow. And that's one of the reasons I'm so excited about the Austin Bar Association's new privacy law section. That's a new adventure and um, evolution in this entire revolution of the privacy law space. So I'm excited that Austin Bar Association supports the idea. Oh, I think we are very interested um, this law, again, it's one of those that on its face maybe doesn't seem like it impacts everybody, but it does. We all have data that's personal that we are giving away all the time. Um, and some of us might work for places where this is our job is to make sure that we protect it. That's it. Since you have worked in both the private and the public sector, do you have an idea of a favorite role that you've had? Do you love working in both worlds? I do. I do. But I can say that what was so fulfilling about working in the attorney general's office, um, the state bar and for the comptroller is the notion that you're practicing law for law's sake. There's not necessarily a dollar metric attached to every hour that we're researching or writing, you know, a data classification policy or you know, instant response plan. So in that notion, it there also is a notion of serving the public, being a public servant. So that was very rewarding in both in both of those contexts. In the private sector, I think I kind of like the adrenaline rush of needing to perform and to be my best and maximize my potential. And but what I love about it is the variety of clients that are walk through the door. It could be a startup or it could be a very large global company. Um, and so being able to, at, at the firm where I am, our, our rates are not like global Amloft 100 firms. So the pie is bigger. There are more pieces in the pie for me to serve and help. And that's really the reward at this phase of my life is to be able to give value to a business without always looking for the highest dollar. Um, anyway, so it's been both of them, I think, offer pros for sure. Well, that is a wonderful way to look at the private sector. And I think it goes back to your humility and your start of if you... If you aren't always just searching the dollar, then maybe what you can look for is service and happiness. Yes, definitely. So in that vein, what advice do you have for attorneys that want to follow in your footsteps? 
Oh my goodness. Um, what I would first say is join the Austin Bar Association Privacy Law Section. Um, but in general, no matter what, I think another area I'd like to influence others to consider is it doesn't matter what age you are when you decide to do something that you have a passion for and that it, it that it triggers something inside of you that makes you feel so alive as a professional so whether you're just entering the legal the world of being a lawyer or whether you are someone in your 50s like I was when I became a privacy attorney um stay scholarly and stay social and by that i mean write about topics that are practical to all businesses provide takeaways speak you know study very hard so that you are credible and legitimate and stay current um and then um i th i think just network for sure stay social join organizations like the IEPP. Um, but if, you know, do more than just attend conferences. In other words, if you want to learn it, um, go to a conference. There's no shame in that. But if you want to know it, teach it. So that would be my takeaway. Elizabeth, I think that you have given maybe the best quotes that we have had in any of these episodes and so many of them you are a wealth of knowledge i love this stay scholarly stay social and if you want to know it teach it i mean it makes perfect sense that you could sit in as many cle as you want and try to absorb information but if you're going to teach it you really have to know how to do it for sure and it's ever changing and that makes it exciting too is to always be learning well, thank you so much for being here today with us. I'm so excited about your section. I'm going to join. Thank you. Um, and we will set up your mixer soon and tell everybody how to get there. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Sure. Thank you. And thank all of you. We'll see you next time. Yeah.